What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. I'm Rachel Wadham, and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, helping children and parents explore the world of literacy. Today, we'll be exploring the worlds of grammar, music, and historical fiction. First, we'll have author Annette Lyon in the studio to talk about the importance of grammar. Then, music teacher Jennifer Purdy will bring some light to the elements of music. Our last guest will be author and professor Chris Crow, and we'll talk about historical fiction. As always, we'll have a librarian's table where we'll talk with librarians from around Utah about children, books, and life. Along with our interviews, we'll have story time with Peter Pan by J.M. Barry and some book trivia. But before all that, let's step into my world. Rachel's world. We use all of our senses as we see, feel, and taste and hear the information around us. One of the purposes of experiencing all these sensations is to encode these experiences into our memories. Memory formation is very complex, and it helps us to filter out data we may not need and then organize that data into meaningful patterns. Memory plays a significant part in all literacy activities. We need to remember the alphabet and vocabulary to be strong readers. We need to remember formulas and strategies when we do math. Because of this, as a teacher, I've found that helping students understand how they make and use their memories is pretty important. Most of us are familiar with how the basics of memory work. It goes something like this. We have a sensory input that moves into our short-term memory, and then it moves into our long-term memory. While this is a standard pattern, everyone will process memories in a slightly different way. This is important to remember, especially as we work with children. We need to help them find their own ways and to know that there is no one correct way. While one student may visualize a diagram or process to remember it, another may prefer to see it as a list. As we work with children, we want to give them many strategies to use that will help support memory. Among the most basic strategies we teach are encouraging students to write things down. We also encourage students to draw pictures. Since the old adage is true, a picture is worth a thousand words. Another thing we talk about to help children develop memory is visualization, where we help children learn to associate an image with an idea. We also talk about repetition, where we help students learn to repeat things either exactly or in their own words. Also, patterns are particularly important for memory. So we teach children how to see patterns and then how to use those observations to make a memory. For many children, it is important for us to teach them these techniques explicitly so they can really understand how to use them. For others, these techniques may come naturally when modeled by engaged adults. So no matter what techniques you use, here at Rachel's World, we encourage you to think a little bit more about memory and how we can use it to strengthen our children's literacy. Rachel's World Languages and dialects are very complex things, and at times they seem to be daunting. 
English is certainly not an exception. Today, we're in studio with Annette Lyon, an author who specializes in one of the most intimidating parts of language arts, grammar. Welcome, Annette. Thank you. Annette, you are an expert, I would think, <laughs> in one topic that I think scares a lot of people. So I'm excited that you're here today to kind of break this down for our listening audience and make it a little more approachable. And that is grammar. I think grammar is so important in what we do with language, but it can also be a little scary. So to start out, tell us a little bit about why you think looking at grammar or studying grammar is an important part of what we need to do to help us be more literate. Oh, that's such a great question. And it helps to know, I grew up as a child of a linguistics professor. So um, language, um, not just grammar, but all kinds of language things, uh, we discussed around the kitchen table. And I thought this was normal. Apparently, it's not. <laughs> but there's there's kind of two prongs to the language thing. One is that no dialect is inherently better or superior than another, um, which means, you know, whether it's a Boston or Texan or, or, you know, Manhattan, whatever, whatever accent you have or whatever way you have of speaking is not necessarily better or worse than someone else's. That's the descriptive side of things where we analyze and look, oh, check out this interesting little quirk that they have in Florida or whatever. The other side is the prescriptive, like what is right and what is wrong. And that applies only to standard English. Now, the trick with that is that standard English doesn't really exist in real life per se, it is what the educated masses have decided is correct. So what that means in real life is that um, to be taken seriously, you need to know the, the standard. You need to be able to write in the standard. Um, you need to be able to speak in the standard. So if you're going to a job interview, you'll be taken far more seriously if you're speaking at least standard grammar on some level. And when you're writing, the, sa- the, the very same thing goes. If you're writing to your manager or you're writing a letter of complaint to sue or you know, a warranty Whatever it is, if it's correct and it's accurate to the standard, you'll be taken far more seriously. So in a sense, the way my father would put it is knowing the standard is currency. It is really, it is a tool that you have to increase your chances of communication and to be taken seriously in life and to get farther wherever you want to go. It's very important for everybody. I don't care if you're a writer or not. I love that sense that it really is currency and understanding that it helps us engage with the world in a really wonderful, fundamental way. But then why, if it's so important, why is it so scary, do you think? (laughs) I mean, what what is it about grammar that makes us fearful, do you think? I think part of it maybe is the same idea of why we're always scared of math. It's just like, oh, that's a hard thing. Ah! And and possibly teachers who don't teach it in, a, in, a, in an accessible way. It's like, here, just memorize this and spit it back out. Um, where and, and with math, it's the same way, too. If you have a great teacher who explains the, the concepts and the principles behind what we're doing and what this formula is, then you go, oh, okay, I get it. And so the same thing, I think, is with grammar. So and punctuation and all of all of the stuff that goes into that, where if, if you can sit there and say, here's why this happens. This is why it's clearer with a comma here than without. This is why this is confusing. This is why this, ironically, this legal case was resolved in this direction and not this direction because of a missing comma, because it changed the meaning. Um, so I'm very big on let's break it down and explain it in very, in very accessible terms. We don't have to use, oh, the gerund and the dangling participle. and the, I think it's those terms that freak people out. 
uh, you know, in you know, ninth grade, I'd, my teacher was trying to explain prepositional phrases. And I know them now, but at the time I was like, a what? And I was terrified. Um, and then the next year I had a fantastic teacher who ironically had my father as a, as a student. And she explained things so well. And I was like, oh, I get it. And then I had her again my senior year of high school. Um, and then as I've gone on in my career, I have I've corrected English teachers who've been in my critique group. I'm the one they go to. How did you know this? How did you learn all this? Was it in college? Actually, it was my high school English teacher. <laughs> but my brother, um, he did not go on into any sort of you know a writing field. He was he's just recently retired um, from the police force. Um, but he too said that teacher was the only one who was able to make grammar make sense. He understood it after her class. He got it. So everyone who took her class, they understood it because she was like, okay, look, look, see this and see this and easy to see. Not a big deal. So I think if people can find a way to learn it in a, and break it down, like Grammar Girl, if you look at she has a great website, great podcast, great books, and it's all broken down into very simple, she calls them quick and dirty tips. Here's a, here's a mnemonic device to help you remember this, or here's that. And you can find all kinds, I mean, she has this huge backlog of um, of, of podcasts. They're, they're fat. She is really good in explaining that kind of stuff. That's a great way because I don't think we all had teachers like that who could break no. it down. So if we can find <laughs> resources like that, that that help us break it down. I think those are excellent. I know this is a really big topic. And when we talk about grammar, there's so many things about it. But maybe address one or two things that you think are just really important. If if you could learn these one or two things, you'd be in a, in a good start to, to be more competent with your grammar. A <laughs> couple of things. Oh, that's, that's a tricky one. I would say understanding something as simple as how verbs work. This is going to sound silly, but just that do scary words, action words, you know, essentially. <laughs> but oftentimes people will, you know, because just because like we often and when we're speaking, we don't always enunciate every single syllable. So if I've seen, you know, people write out, oh, I text my mom and it's T-E-X-T and referring to yesterday that no, it should be past tense. We still need an E-D at the end. You know, that kind of thing. Our understanding, um, I've seen a lot of people say things like, well, uh, tying my shoelaces, I ran down the stairs. And it's like, well, then you fell down and broke your, head, your, your neck yeah. or whatever, you know, because you can't do both of those at the same time. So just kind of sometimes it's helpful to read things aloud and then it sounds weird to your ear. You're like, oh, wait, that that doesn't sound quite right. Or have somebody else read it to you. Um, even Microsoft Word, I believe, has a feature you can read things back to you and then you can realize, oh, that didn't come out the way I intended or that does sound weird. Um, so just I think that's one of the biggest things maybe is just reading reading your own work aloud. Um, in fact, when my son was in fifth grade, he had a paper and here, mom, would you print it out? And I said, sure. And I handed it to him. I said, now read it. He's like, I've gone over this like 10 times, mom. It's, it's great. I'm like, humor me, read it. I'm like, because of course, I'm just mom. I'm not an editor writer um, to him. And he read and he goes, oh, he found like three things he wanted to fix typos because you see it on the page, but you don't see it on the screen necessarily or you hear it with your ear. Um, Let's see, other grammar things. Um, if you can get just a few, like, confused word pairs, like um, homophones, the words that sound similar but actually aren't the same thing. So when you know which one you're writing down, you know, is it it's with an apostrophe or is it it's without? That's Those kinds of things I see chronically on things like Facebook and, you know, whatever. If you can get the correct um, pronouns, like whose and whose, is it possessive or is it who is, and that kind of thing. Those are really big imply and infer, so, you know, just some of those verbs that people just are forgetting which one means which. So that's, if you, and you can find 
you can find lists of those online as well. Because if you accidentally say the wrong word, the sentence may mean something you didn't intend. And then it's kind of this funny little oops, malapropism kind of thing. So, yeah. I, I think that paying attention is a really important part. And a lot of this is about just paying attention yeah. and maybe doing some revision or thought before we do that. And Time I think, yeah, before the revision. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Because I think in this day and age, some a lot of our writing is hurried and rushed and oh, yeah. you know fast. And you say you see these on Facebook and stuff all the time. It's yeah. because we're not thinking about it. And or there's an not... autocorrect and we yeah. didn't catch it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the autocorrect does Which a is lot when of that. <laughs> I've had people go, oh, I caught the grammar person making a mistake. I'm like, oh, sheesh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll fix it now. Now you can fix your yeah, Facebook. Now things. you can fa- fix those. Um, posts, one yeah. big tip I think I, I know a lot of really good writers picked up a lot of rules by doing a lot of reading. The more you read, a lot of these rules will become instinctual. Like I, I, I was talking to a gentleman the other day who said, "I can't explain the rules, but I can I can do it right, and I can recognize when it's wrong." Just because he's read so much, so that the, I that I definitely would recommend reading reading books, which is all what we're about here, yeah, right? It's, it's so true. <laughs> yeah, reading, writing, all that kind of great stuff. I think that's really important because a lot of this too. I think one of the things that we know is that it really is instinctual, and I think a lot of us know more than we think we do, even yeah. if we can't name it, or if, even we can't say, "Oh yes, that is a prepositional phrase," or "That is doing this thing," or "That's serving this purpose." We just instinctually know if we've mm-hmm. if we've read good writing and we've you know listened to good speaking and all that kind of stuff we can we can just hear and understand it at a very broad level even mm-hmm. if we can't absolutely. name it absolutely and then sometimes the grammar can the lessons can be just actually putting names to things you know see this thing that you already know well that's called this and here's a way to use it effectively yeah. I think that's a really great approach to start with as we close up our conversation today. Maybe tell us one thing that you think would be important to remember or one thing to help extend our understanding of grammar in a way that you just think is is really significant. Oh, goodness. Um, something I, I've, I, when I've spoken to both teens and adults, something that just um, is always keeps coming back to me is how just how important it is to be literate um, in and all across the board, whether no matter what it is, because, you know, a generation ago, most jobs did not require a college degree. Today, good luck trying to find one that doesn't. Um, and whether it's you work at McDonald's, whether you're whatever it is, you're, you need to be able to communicate in the written form in some fashion. And there are all kinds of studies that show that, that you're like more likely to get poor health care because you don't know basic things like symptoms and um, when to, to advocate for yourself. You don't know how to do the research to figure out what is a, a scary thing or what's not. And children are raised healthier if their parents are literate. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of studies that prove that, you know, if you're in poverty, chances are you're illiterate and that kind of thing. So it is the best gift anyone can have is to learn how to read and learn how to write because that predicts, you know, all so many amazing things and takes you out of these risk factors for so many others. Great way to end because I agree totally. I think those types of things and learning the basics and learning the rules and learning the approaches just to help us engage better with the world around us and makes things like grammar so much more important. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you, Annette. Annette Lyon is a USA Today bestselling author. Now let's take a trip to Neverland. It's story time with an excerpt from Peter Pan by J.M. Barry, read by Tenery Taylor. Mrs. Darling first heard of Peter when she was tidying up her children's minds. 
It is the nightly custom of every good mother after her children are asleep to rummage in their minds and put things straight for the next morning, repacking into their proper places the many articles that have wandered during the day. If you could keep awake, but of course you can't, you would see your own mother doing this, and you would find it very interesting to watch her. It is quite like tidying up drawers. You would see her on her knees, I expect, lingering humorously over some of your contents, wondering where on earth you had picked this thing up, making discoveries sweet and not so sweet, pressing this to her cheek as if it were as nice as a kitten, and hurriedly stowing that out of sight. When you wake in the morning, the naughtiness and evil passions with which you went to bed have been folded up small and placed at the bottom of your mind, and on the top, beautifully aired, are spread your prettier thoughts, ready for you to put on. Occasionally, in her travels through her children's minds, Mrs. Darling found things she could not understand, and of these, quite the most perplexing was the word Peter. She knew of no Peter, and yet he was here and there, in John and Michael's minds, while Wendy's began to be scrawled all over with him. The name stood out in bolder letters than any of the other words, and as Mrs. Darling gazed, she felt that it had an oddly cocky appearance. Yes, he is rather cocky, Wendy admitted with regret. Her mother had been questioning her. But who is he, my pet? He is Peter Pan, you know, mother. At first, Mrs. Darling did not know. But after thinking back into her childhood, she remembered a Peter Pan who was said to live with the fairies. There were odd stories about him, as that when children died, he went part of the way with them so that they should not be frightened. She had believed in him at the time, but now that she was married and full of sense, she quite doubted whether there was any such person. Soon the troublesome boy gave Mrs. Darling quite a shock. Children have the strangest adventures without being troubled by them. Some leaves of a tree had been found on the nursery floor, which certainly were not there when the children went to bed, and Mrs. Darling was puzzling over them when Wendy said, with a tolerant smile, I do believe that it is that Peter again. Whatever do you mean, Wendy? It is so naughty of him not to wipe, Wendy said, sighing. She was a tidy child. She explained in quite a matter-of-fact way that she thought Peter sometimes came to the nursery in the night and sat on the foot of her bed and played on his pipes to her. Unfortunately, she never woke, so she didn't know how she knew. She just knew. Certainly Wendy had been dreaming. But Wendy had not been dreaming, as the very next night showed, the night on which the extraordinary adventures of these children may be said to have begun. On the night we speak of, all the children were once more in bed. It happened to be Nana's evening off, and Mrs. Darling had bathed them and sung to them till one by one they had let go of her hand and slid away into the land of sleep. All were looking so safe and cozy that she smiled at her fears now and sat down tranquilly by the fire to sew. It was something for Michael, who on his birthday was getting into shirts. The fire was warm, however, and the nursery dimly lit by three nightlights, and presently the sewing lay on Mrs. Darling's lap. Then her head nodded, oh, so gracefully. She was asleep. Look at the four of them, Wendy and Michael over there, John here, and Mrs. Darling by the fire. There should have been a fourth nightlight. While she slept, she had a dream. She dreamt that the Neverland had come too near and that a strange boy had broken through from it. 
He did not alarm her, for she thought she had seen him before in the faces of many women who have no children. Perhaps he is to be found in the faces of some mothers also. But in her dream he had rent the film that obscures the Neverland, and she saw Wendy and John and Michael peeping through the gap. The dream by itself would have been a trifle, but while she was dreaming, the window of the nursery blew open, and a boy did drop on the floor. He was accompanied by a strange light, no bigger than your fist, which darted about the room like a living thing, and I think it must have been this light that wakened Mrs. Darling. She started up with a cry and saw the boy, and somehow she knew at once that he was Peter Pan. He was a lovely boy clad in skeleton leaves and the juices that ooze out of trees. But the most entrancing thing about him was that he had all his first teeth. When he saw she was a grown-up, he gnashed the little pearls at her. things that I think it is important to remember is that many art forms like books, paintings, or music have specific elements that are important parts of what make them up. Sometimes appreciating an art is about understanding those elements. Today, I have elementary music teacher Jennifer Purdy with me in studio. Jennifer, I'd like to start off by talking about the elements of music and how they can help us better understand it. So to start off, tell us what are the basic elements of music? I think I would start with one of the main elements being pitch, which means the highness or lowness of a sound, what you're hearing, the melody, is it moving up and down, and what is the interaction of the melody? Are there more than one? Is there more than one melody going on at a time? Is there harmony? Anyway, just being able to listen for that is really important. One of the first things that I teach children to listen for is, is it high or low? Even that skill is really important for young children to be able to understand and hear and identify. Is it a high pitch or is it a low pitch? Can you make those same pitches with your own voice? Right there is a really important key for not only hearing music, but participating in it and being able to do music. So we start with that sense of pitch. And I think that particularly takes us to a sense of melody. And then as it gets more complex, understanding that pitch helps us then to pick those things out. How does that work? I think it helps with just auditory processing and some of those auditory skills that are important with language just across in everyday life. There's a lot of correlation between being able to hear a pitch, match a pitch with your voice, and being proficient in some of those auditory discrimination skills in just language, spoken language, not just singing. So it's that's a skill that's really important for children to develop. And I think the next element then would be moving into duration, which I would identify as like rhythm and beat. What people would say is the underlying steady beat, is it a fast beat? Is it a slow beat? Can you identify the steady beat? Could you match the steady beat? Can you hear it? Can you march to it? Can you clap it? Those are really important skills also for young children. And uh, I think we've talked before about how children that can keep a steady beat are more proficient readers. There's a connection there which is very interesting to me. 
It really is interesting to me, too, because I think we often isolate things like reading and writing and even music into these little components just so maybe they're easier to study or easier to look at. But the reality is they're all so interconnected that understanding the sense of duration, fast and slow, is also helpful with reading or even communicating and speaking. Am I speaking too fast? Am I speaking too slow? These kind of social things. There's so much of this sense that even understanding these basic elements of music help us to understand maybe how we interact with other people and how we extend it. So I love this lovely interconnectedness that all of this brings. It is. It is. And that's what I, I, I wouldn't want parents to go home and say, I'm going to go teach my child to keep a steady beat so that he's a better reader, because there's so many other things that are involved with that. But think about just language skills where... A child could identify somebody asking a question by the way that their voice goes up at the end. Are you happy today? Are you happy today? It, it has a whole different it has a whole different sound, um, but they need to be able to discriminate between that highness or lowness of even the spoken pitch of a voice. And I think that's wonderful to show this this connection, that understanding what pitch is in music helps us understand what pitch is in vocal inflection. So particularly with pitch and duration, um, how would a parent go about maybe playing with their child to help develop these things? I don't think it has to be, like you said, we're going to now learn duration, all right? <laughs> yes, I, I think sometimes right. it's just about play or how, you know, how would we go about just making this a part of a, a fun part of what we do with our children? Think of some of the games that you play with your baby, patty cake, patty cake, bakers, man, that's always done to a steady beat. Um, when you're rocking a baby, that's actually steady beat. Beat is beat is just intrinsic to life. Babies hear their mother's heartbeat before they're even born. And you're rocking a baby to the steady beat and you play some of those games to a steady beat. It's actually it's actually a very natural thing to do, but just doing it often and letting the children experience that in a, in a natural way, not a contrived way, but doing it often, nursery rhymes are a really great way to do that. And some of those those singing and singing games and and little play games, clapping games, those are really really good ways to help establish that. I think in today's society, we've we've missed a com- we're kind of missing a component that may have happened in society in earlier days where work was often done to a steady beat. Um, the mother was sewing on a treadle sewing machine that was done to a steady beat. The father was out chopping wood with an axe to a steady beat. People were hoeing or working in fields to a steady beat. And a lot of the songs, folk songs and things that we have are originated as work songs that were sung when people could stay together and keep to a steady beat as they worked. And we're not, we kind of have missed that. A lot of the sea shanties... Um, some of those songs were done to work. Those were just an, a part of everyday life. Some of those original folk songs that have been around for years and years were sung to activities and things that were done to those songs and about work and about society. And it's not quite the same now with children and screen time and some of the things that they're doing aren't done, but steady beat and just an underlying pulse was occurring in everyday activities, which is kind of interesting to think about. We're kind of missing that if you compare. 
That, that's interesting to me because I, I can remember um, as a child, you know, standing in line where we would have somebody washing the dishes, somebody rinsing the dishes, somebody wiping the dishes and ready to put them away. And we would set up a beat, you know, and and pass the dishes down the line to 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 the beat of either the song that we were singing or the song that we were listening to or just kind of, you know, a rhythm that we made up as we went along. And and that just made the work go faster. And it was a lot more fun, you know, and we're just trying to keep the beat and keep matching it and all of those types of things. So even simple things like that as a family, maybe, okay, we're going to set up a beat to clear up the table or we're going to set up a beat to mopping the floor or we're set up a beat to making the bed would just be a really great way to connect that sense of duration and rhythm and make the work more fun. Absolutely. I want to come do dishes with you, I know, Rachel. That that we have a, really we have a fun. dishwasher now. So, <laughs> but the dishwasher gives us a beat. Yes, it does. <laughs> that yes, was, those were does. the days, pre-dishwasher days. It in does. Our house. <laughs> Which would be interesting just to find the beats that you hear in, in nature and around, you know, but... Um, I think a lot of the activities that are done today necessarily aren't the same and aren't done to that same steady beat as perhaps in other days. Maybe finding those opportunities would be a really good way to do that. I think that's true. So we talked about pitch. We talked about duration. What else is important? There's a fun word called timbre. It's okay. spelled T-I-M-B-R-E. Timbre. Timbre. All right. And Define it for us. It's Musicians call it tone color, but it's actually kind of the unique quality of sound. So the timbre of my voice would be very different than your voice. So your listeners could hear who's talking. They can tell whether it's me or whether it's you. Um, It's being able to identify the difference between the sound of a piano and the sound of a trumpet, for example, or the sound of a bass drum as opposed to a snare drum. So that's what timbre is, a unique quality of sound. So voices have different timbres. Instruments have different timbres and we hear different timbres in our environment a car horn versus a bird chirping versus the sound of the street sweeper coming down the road sounds very different than the garbage truck so that's what timbre is so how does understanding timbre help us engage with our world oh i think it just does i think it I think encouraging children to hear the difference and listen for differences and it's something that i think they do naturally um, but sometimes it's fun to just do an exercise, close your eyes, and what do you hear? And sometimes just stopping and being able to listen, because so many times we don't take the time to just stop and listen, and, and what do you hear, and how how do you hear things interacting in, in your world? Like you said, maybe it's a steady beat of a dishwasher. Maybe it's the neighbor's dog barking, but there's always things to hear, and and discriminating between sounds and appreciating the difference between sounds can help not only in musicianship, but in life. I think you're right. And I think for me, especially when we're talking about this kind of sense of color, that I think is one of the things that put people off or make them a little nervous, particularly about classical music, because with classical music, there's so many of these colors in one place. And if you haven't been taught to identify it, it just sounds noisy and messy. But when you start thinking, okay, there's the flutes, or there's the trumpets, or this is how the trumpet is interacting in this kind of context, it helps us break that up a little bit. So do you think that's do you think that's the case too, that this understanding of tone and color and how that works can help us appreciate 
at a very basic level, music more absolutely. deeply. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so perhaps a violin concerto, which means that the violin would have the solo part. Even just trying to listen for that throughout, just giving yourself something to listen for. Listen for that violin solo part in a concerto would give you an appreciation right there um, and an interest in trying to hear that rather than just passively letting the the music just be there. It's just kind of surrounding you. Listening for something makes it much more interesting and interacting. And I think the other next question for me, too, would be, why did the composer or why did the person that was making this music pick that, right? And so there's some interesting connections there of, you know, why did they pick the flute over the trumpet? Or why did they pick this kind of drum over that kind of drum? And that takes us kind of to the next level of saying, how can we analyze this? How can we look more deeply at what this is trying to offer? Right. Um, One of my favorite music genres is jazz. I love jazz. And I love how Jazz is so often a conversation between two different instruments and or four or three or four. And the form of jazz is that it is it is a conversation. A lot of times the solos or or um, the trading of melodic lines is is just this this simple conversation and a play off each other. And the improvisation of jazz just adds such a fun, playful element to that where if you don't know how to listen to that and you don't know how to hear that or it it would not be as enjoyable. So sometimes knowing how to listen for those specific things makes music a great experience. I agree. I think there really is some great things about these elements that make it important for just appreciating music alone, but also for the greater world as we've talked about. So any other elements that we want to mention? Well, another one that I think is important is form. And sometimes for children especially, seeing a pattern and finding patterns, that's something that they're asked to do and that is a a real aid to literacy in both math and language arts. Finding patterns, recognizing patterns, creating patterns um, is something that will help them in a lot of things. And being able to identify a pattern in music makes it recognizable and familiar. And when you know what comes next or you know what to anticipate, then it makes it so much more fun to listen to. So patterns can be as simple as songs, the pattern between a verse and a a chorus or a refrain. Um, But it also makes in classical music or jazz or anything much more enjoyable listening if you know what to expect or you know the context of the form that 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 musical piece is going to take. And I think that's a great point, too, particularly the sense of pattern and form. You mentioned math, and I think sometimes we don't give as much credit for how mathematical and how pattern-oriented music is and how seeing that can particularly help those that maybe struggle with math visualize it in a way that they might that they might not be able to without that connection. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's so many patterns and so much math in music, like you said. Um, And grouping. Music comes in groups of three or four or two or six. And and being able to play around with the rhythms within those groupings is very mathematical and also offers a lot of opportunities for creating. Um, If you have a set form, 
and a structure to create within, it doesn't make creating quite so such a scary thing. Um, And when I talk about creating, I'm not saying let's write a song, but creating a rhythm pattern within a structure of beat or a pattern of verse versus chorus or refrain um, makes it a very doable thing for anybody of any age. And if you're um, participating as a listener and not a creator, it still makes it more enjoyable to listen and discover and identify those patterns in the form. I think that that's a wonderful way to wrap up here in our conversation. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for helping us understand what those elements of music are and how they can help us understand our world and connect to not only music, but to all other aspects of our world in a a deeper way. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Jennifer is an elementary music teacher at Highland Park Elementary School. Now, let's listen to our producer, Cole Wissinger, as he explores book trivia with some college students. All right, I am once again outside the library at BYU, surrounded by students, to play another round of children's book trivia. Here we go. In the Hunger Games universe, they divide the known world up into 13 districts, and our protagonist, Katniss Everdeen, comes from which number district? 11 or 13? 12? I don't know. (laughs) One of those high ones. Let's go with 13. District 12. District 12. District... <laughs> 12. 12. Say it one more time. 12. <laughs> 12, yeah. Yep, she's right. 12. <laughs> if she's that excited about anything, you so go for it, all right? <laughs> okay, now they get a little bit harder, all right? Holden Caulfield has a hunting cap in The Catcher in the Rye that is a very distinctive color. What color is that cap? Green. I don't know. I've never read the book. Blue? Blue. I'm going to guess yellow. Orange. I want to say brown. Red. Red. I have no idea. Red? <laughs> Green. Blue. Brown. Red. <laughs> <laughs> it was red. red. In The Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> My mom loves this series. Um, Laura Ingalls Wilder and her family start their journey to the prairie yes. from which U.S. state? Massachusetts. I want to say Pennsylvania. Tennessee. Missouri. I'll go with Missouri. I want to say Minnesota. Oh. Oh, it's been a long time since I read those. I have read them. Do they start from Minnesota? So close. It's Wisconsin. 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 And then last question, from A Wrinkle in Time, you have the three ladies that kind of launched our hero on her adventure, and they were named Mrs. Who, Mrs. What's-It, and Mrs. Oh, I know this. Oh. Is it Why Not? Mrs. Where? Mrs. How? Why... You're here. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Dang it. I can't remember. I remember it was like another question. It like went along with the others. W kind of questions. Yeah. Is it why? Probably something with where. Where? Where's a... What's her name? (laughs) When or where? 
Mrs. Winch. Oh. <laughs> but you're on the right track. All Thank right. you so much. so many genres of books in the world, sometimes it can be really hard to pick your favorite. But how does an author decide what genre of books they want to write? Today, I have author and professor Chris Crow in the studio with me. One of the things that I know about your career is that you've been really focused on doing historical fiction. Can you tell us why you choose historical fiction and what it is about that genre that really attracts you? Well, it's an education, I think, to begin with. I was a history major when I first came to BYU and had a bad experience in my first history class <laughs> and became an English major. But um, I've always loved history. But for me as a writer, it's it's a chance to learn about things that I didn't know enough about. So especially civil rights history, African-American history, those things. I think either I was my eyes were glossed over or my teachers glossed over the subject, but I didn't get I didn't get what I thought I what I now think I should have gotten in high school and university studies. So um and I like researching. So it's fun to dig. I I like researching too. I think that's one of the cool things about historical fiction is that it really brings to light some of these unknown pieces yeah. of history. And I think that's one of the reasons that it connects to young readers. I, what do you see young readers responding to historical fiction? What is it about that genre that really connects to those readers in particular? I think it's that uh, – I mean I don't know for sure, but I, it, part of it probably is the, the fact they're learning something. And then uh, there is that unknown – I mean once you get to a certain age, you realize there's a lot of – that yesterday is history and our version of that changes almost – as soon as it happens, we start – it's changed when we recall it. So reading about history is interesting because it's different – people reconstruct it in different ways – uh, I don't know if young readers would see the conflicting accounts of historical records, but um, with historical fiction, I think it's almost like time travel where I see it as uh, the framework is even similar to a dystopian novel where in Brave New World, you've got John the Savage. You know, somebody has to see the dystopia as a dystopia, and that, that viewpoint character provides that. So in historical fiction, it seems like usually there's a viewpoint character that has our perspective, a modern perspective, like a time traveler experiencing that moment in history uh, through through our contemporary eyes. And so we can see how we've grown, how we're better. We could be smug a little bit that we're smarter now than we were back then. Or well, I would never do that now. And But even just the curiosity aspect of what was life like back 10, 20, 100 years ago. Yeah, that, that's an interesting juxtaposition, particularly of historical fiction, because I think with historical fiction, you often see real people appearing, and you don't usually see that in contemporary right. realistic or even fantasy. Of course, there would be no real people. But with historical fiction, it can have real people appearing, but it can also just be an entirely right. fictional group of people uh, that show up to tell the story. And you've done both in, in your book Emmett about Emmett Till. There's definitely some real people appearing in that book. But in your current book, um, Death Coming Up the Hill, it's entirely a fictional group of people. So how do you represent both of those kinds of experiences well, especially if you're representing real people? How do you, how do you find out and make sure that you're representing them with honesty and integrity because they were real people that lived? 
Well, the Mississippi trial, 1955, that was that required more research because of that. So learning about Emmett, and it was difficult to learn, initially to learn much about him because he had become such a martyr figure in African-American culture that there was a lot of myth out there, not grand myths, but just small details that were wrong, even where he died. some I read some accounts that he was in Jackson. And uh, so I had to sift through that and to find you try to get to know about him as a kid. So his mother, had re- it was widely reported by his mother, especially that he had a stutter. And so in my novel, he stutters and that he was a, a, a wise guy. He liked to make people laugh. Uh, and so that prankster kind of quality is something that I gave him, even though he's a minor character. But in the trial scenes, those are all, the trial chapters of that book are, are right from the trial, from the accounts of the trial. So it was easy just to have the person say what the record says they said, yeah. and it was so outlandish that it was stranger than fiction to have some of the things that they that the defense team especially said in the trial. So there's that. And then there were people, um, when I was down in, in Mississippi researching, people I met who became characters in the book. So there was a blind guy who worked in the courthouse. He'd been there since World War II. He's blind in World War wow. II. So he'd been there when Bryant and Milam were arrested all that time, yeah. and uh, he just sold drinks and candy bars in the lobby. So his name was Mr. Tom, and he was a, he's a figure, and he's dead now, but he was a figure in Greenwood. So I just changed the name to Mr. Paul, and I, it turned out I knew his daughter-in-law, and so I asked her, I emailed her and said, do you mind if I use basic character on him? But he's pretty much, I just changed yeah. his name and stuck him in the book. Um, and then there were some other minor characters that I'd heard about or seen while I was in Mississippi, and I just co-opted that personality and gave them a name and used them so I had felt like I had more freedom with them to put words in their mouths because there's no – they aren't historic figures. They're just people who happen to be in Greenwood when I was down there. With getting away – or with Death Coming Up the Hill, it was more of a period that I was – that it's about. It's more about 1968, the era. So there are some characters though. Uh, Mr. Ruby, who's the social studies teacher in the novel. My social studies teacher is Mr. Ruby, my junior <laughs> year. And he was a World War II vet. He'd had a Marine tattoo. We could see he always wore a tie and had his, his uh, long sleeve shirts half rolled. And we could see when he wrote on the board, we could see his tattoo. We, he never talked about that, but we all knew he was a veteran. And he was very open-minded in terms of stretching our, especially my limited brain. You know, he was he was kind of introducing big ideas at the time. So, uh, but it, but really, it is all a work of fiction except for the historical things that happen. Uh, in 68. And so my research there was more on what happened and how did it happen and where did it happen and and what, are the, you know, what seems to be the most accurate representation of that. Yeah. But that's really interesting because I think that one of the things, whether it's real characters or um, fictional characters, the reality is a lot of these stories just bring up this human condition. And I, I like your analogy of time travel because it allows us to see to see these historical events, but actually show our modern viewpoints. And with Death Coming Up the Hill, I think that's one of the things that I love about the book is because it really shows us that this boy, even though he's dealing with all of this war and and the turmoil that comes around all of that in 1968, he's also dealing with real family problems yeah. at home with his parents and um, and you know getting a new girlfriend and all of these types of things. So it just makes that universal, that kind of structural universal. So when you were writing this this novel, do you think that part of that universal experience was important to write about? Um, or did you choose to juxtapose it with the war for a for a specific reason? 
Uh, I think the universality is, is the appeal. And I, I would guess that's part of why teenagers like to read historical fiction. Part of me believes that human beings, we haven't changed much. We have the same emotions that we've had for millennia. So we still get angry and we feel a certain way when we're angry and we get upset and we fall in love and all those emotions, uh, those are there's, those are timeless. So by having a character in historical work have those emotions, then we, as modern readers, we can relate to them. There's a guy in the history department named Jeff Noakes who's uh, really interested in using uh, trade fiction in history classes, and he talks a lot about presentism. That mm. when our when our modern viewpoint shapes the story, sh- changes history to make it palatable for what we expect, and there's that danger then of having a character who's who couldn't have existed in the era that she's living in because. She, she wouldn't have been allowed to exist. Well, and I think that idea of about emotion is one of the things that's really poignant to me about historical fiction. But also in your novel, it's in verse. It's in a haiku format. And I think that's one of the things for novels in verse. It really connects us to that emotionality. Um, so what do you think it is about the, that form, that novel in verse form that connects us to those passionate emotions of humanity? One, one thing I, I that I like about it myself as a writer is, is the the economy of words. So, uh, and especially because I was writing in haiku stanzas, I had to, I had to be really conscious of any, any word or word change. So it, that means that it's like writing poetry and I'm not a poet, but poetry is so compressed. So there's so much there that's done with, so, there's so much done with so little that the reader has to bring something to the text and then that magnifies it. So I would assume that novels and verse, if they're done well, have that same effect where, there's compression, there's economy, there's power, a lot more thoughtfulness into every single word as opposed to creating a scene in prose. You're more worried about the scene and not how long it might be or how many words you're using. But in verse, you're worried about moments and key words that have some real punch. So that's, I mean, maybe some people it doesn't take them very long to write in verse. I don't know, but for me it did <laughs> because of concentrating so much about on words. Yeah. Well, I think you do that masterfully in this novel. So what perspectives do you think um, that especially your uh, books about Emmett Till, what, what different perspectives do they bring to the table? What, what do you think they offer? Well, in that one, in Mississippi Trial, it's a lot like Death Came with the Hill where he's naive about the world around him and, kind of, and assumes generally, well, my life's pretty good. Everybody else's must be. So he's, he's because he's white, he doesn't really get – the, how bad racism is for some people and all the problems associated with that. With Ash, he's, he's kind of oblivious to what's going on in the war. I mean, yeah, there's a war over there and people are dying, but it doesn't seem yeah. real. Yeah. But as it begins, as as he learns more about it, it becomes weightier and weightier each week with more men dying. Yeah. Well, that is wonderful. Thank you so much, Chris, for joining us today and chatting about your new book, which is Death Coming Up the Hill. And we appreciate your time. Thank great you. to be here. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you, Chris. Chris Crow is an author of historical and nonfiction literature, as well as a professor of English here at BYU. Now I'll be stepping around the librarian's table with Emily and Taylor to talk about age appropriateness. We're continuing our chat with Emily and Taylor today. We've been kind of breaking down all the the 
things that make a good book, I guess, and kind <laughs> yeah. of breaking that down in our own heads. So let's kind of talk holistically. Um, what holistically makes a good book? And particularly, I think when we talk about literature for children and young adults, what holistically makes a good book for a particular age group? So what do you think are some things that might be that we might need to pay attention to or the things that are important as we look at that kind of issue of holistically looking at a good book? I think people don't think about this when they it's not something that you think about until you are thinking about is this age (laughs) appropriate and and we think about it a lot at work as we look at children's books that come to us and something I think is I didn't think about font or color or things like that Mm -hmm. with picture books about how that could translate to being age appropriateness like bright flashy colors are very age appropriate towards toddlers and preschoolers they're learning colors those bright colors they like that Mm -hmm. whereas I don't like that so much and maybe that's because I'm I'm older and I think as you get older there starts to be more of pastels and things start become more realistic it's not this bright colorful world that you've created it's now you're getting more realistic I don't know if that's why it does that, but I, I, I think feel it's that. part of it. I think it's part of it, right? Because I think particularly with young children, their visual acuity is such and they're developing. They need that kind of bright sense and they just need something that will hold their attention longer. I think, I think yes, it's partly a attention thing, right? Like. Because as an adult, we'll look at something really dull or we'll read something really dull <laughs> for a lot longer than I think a child or a teen would, That's right? True, yeah. So I think in my estimation, writing for children and teens is actually harder than writing for adults because adults will put up with anything for a really long time, but children and kids story. Yeah. For children and kids. I mean, I've read so many books. I know you guys have too, right? I'm, I'm into it. And I'm like, this is the worst book I've ever read. But I need to know how it ends. But I need to know what's happening. I need to know how it ends. So I've got to finish it. Right. But a a child won't do that. Right. Mm -hmm. They would get to a certain point and be just like, "Uh, yeah. And then they'll hand you another book and you're like, why can't we finish this one? Yeah, Yeah. exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So I think part of that is, um, Attention span development yeah. is part of the Yeah, we were talking game. about how with certain age groups for picture books, like for, for preschoolers, there should be less words on the page mm, yeah. than for like primary age children. Um, but Especially for the, the attention span. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. if you're an adult and you open a book and you're reading to like a three-year-old and they have like – or if it's – we just looked at a book uh, that just came out. It's – the monopoly it's the, oh yes the, the history of history monopoly. Monopoly. there we go yeah yeah and i was like whoa and like the front looks fun and what kid doesn't love monopoly like wants to hear like how <laughs> monopoly started and i opened it and my heart just sunk <laughs> i was like why are there There's so, so many, many words. words on this yeah. page and i understand when and i think that's a tricky part with informational yeah. books and why i think it's Hard. It is yeah. so hard. I can't even. I don't think I could ever write a children's yeah. book, <laughs> like a picture book. Yeah. To really get across the message yeah. you want and have it be edifying for children, because books are instructional for yeah. children more than anything. I think. Mm-hmm. And to use this as a, a teaching piece, but yeah. also have them stay entertained. Yeah. Like, don't put that big block of text on the side of the page. No parent is going to be able to read through that yeah. with that child's attention span. Yeah. And they're not going to catch any of that. I, I tell people that writing picture books, particularly picture books for young children, is more about being a poet than it yes. is about yes. being any kind, other kind of yeah. writer. Because it totally it's, – it's such a more poetic form that – 
And I don't think people realize that, right? They think, oh, I could write a, I could write a children's book. I could write a picture book. And I'm like, yeah, no, mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't. The, you have to be a, po- you have to be a poet. Yeah, and you have, you also have to take into consideration the illustrations. Mm. Are they going to match the text or the feel of the text? And are they going to be age appropriate? Stuff like that. And I think I think in the end, that's true of all literature, picture books, fiction, nonfiction, and that is there are so many pieces of these elements that go together. I mean, we've talked about plot and mm-hmm. character and setting, but the reality is all of those interact with each other. And in the end, I think this just goes to show how complex this is, right? Mm-hmm. So nobody out there should underestimate children's books ever again because <laughs> they're, they're very complex, right? I mean, they are high literature with mm-hmm. very complex things that go into all forms of literature, but then they also have to be appropriate, age appropriate for the age that they're develop, you know, the developmental age that you're looking for and all of those kinds of things, plus be a good story. So, you know, hats off yeah. <laughs> to all those authors out there who are doing this and doing it well, because it's not as easy as you think. No. <laughs> not as easy as you think. So hooray for great children's literature. Yes. We love it. Thank you, ladies. I'd like to thank Emily and Taylor for coming around the librarian's table with me today. We've had a great show. First, we talked with author Annette Lyon about the importance of grammar. Then we talked with music teacher Jennifer Purdy about the elements of music. Our last guest was Chris Crow, and we discussed historical fiction. If you missed any of today's show, or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org, as well as on most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we do here at Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow our Instagram at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger, our student production assistant is Natalie Anderson, and our technical advisor is Braden Flint. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting for us next week. Thank you for exploring with us.